Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome to IPC Trouble. Who are you? That's what I'm seeing you now. The mighty Queen is back. Having saved the legal world, passed all our exams, back in the helm. Yeah, we're back in Brussels and this week we're catching up after a um, busy week of committees. Um, as usual, Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is at the centre of everything that's going on here, but it's coming out and touching everything else that's going on. So I suppose that's the focus of this week's episode. Um, we were going to talk about some environmental aspects, the question of moving away from Russian oil and gas and the impact that that's going to have, the solutions that they're proposing here and the environmental repercussions. We're also going to look quickly at um, some migrant policies and um, various things that have been introduced in that regard. Then there's also the question of uh, the Occupied Territories Bill um, so there's a recent update in terms of the p- possibility that Ireland has to target um, trade restrictions against the occupied territories. Um, so I suppose will we kick off with the discussion of the, the environmental stuff, the, the coal, the oil, the gas. It's front of everyone's mind at the moment. Yeah, um, well, I suppose just... I suppose, uh, specifically on the environmental aspect of it, um, we had uh, we had a debate this week with a few debates on taxonomy, and um, there's um, there's a kind of there's a lot of kind of things uh, up in the air at the moment, and um, the sh- the sands are shifting as well, right? Um, um, people are taking a different position uh, because of the war. Uh, and it's actually more because of the sanctions in reaction to the war than the war itself, from uh, our perspective. Um, but one of the things that's been debated at the moment is the CDA, which is uh, the Complementary Delegated Act, uh, which is part of the taxonomy uh, issue. And people will remember we were discussing this a couple of months ago, where the taxonomy is it actually. The whole idea of taxonomy was that it would outline um, what, for example, would be deemed to be clean uh, energy or clean investment of any sort. Uh, And it was a guideline more for the European Investment Bank uh, than anything else, but also for pension funds and the whole lot. Uh, And we had actually people in from from the Dutch pension funds uh, this week as well. And um, they were talking about where investment uh, will take place uh, in the years ahead and uh, how what standards it's going to meet in terms of 
the environment, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, as we were discussing a couple of months ago, gas and nuclear have been put into it as clean energy. So you right? can invest in gas and nuclear. So you can you can actually invest in gas and nuclear, and you'll get cheap money from uh, the European Investment Bank to do that. And uh, obviously, pension funds are being encouraged to invest money um, environmentally, and you'll find that they'll get, you know, very often there's benefits uh, from following uh, advice of the Commission and that kind of thing. Uh, but having gas and nuclear included is a bit of a joke, right? And because gas is not clean, and neither is nuclear because they have never actually solved the problem of dealing with nuclear waste. And it was actually, there was four, we had four speakers on the debate this week, right? It went on for a few hours now, right? And you know what now? All four of them were actually critical of the commission, uh, the commission, uh, to varying degrees, right? Some are more or less saying, well, no, they can do this and do this, but, and more of them are saying, this is crazy, right? So, I mean, there was a lot of criticism of the commission's position, and they're pointing out that uh, uh, there's, for example, uh, there's there's uh, rules being made around promises, right? So uh, you can, there's people, entities promising to keep under a 20-year emissions cap. They're promising to, to eventually switch to low-carbon gases. They're promising to safely dispose of radioactive waste. But, I mean, uh, one of the questions being asked was, who's to say that gas-fired plants... Uh, will avail of a green label and then end up breaching the threshold or not switching to the low carbon gases. And uh, the, the speakers in general were a little bit critical of it, right? And you'd swear as well, right, um, th- there was a, a report done and um, nuclear energy got off pretty light on it, right? And you would actually think that radioactive waste wasn't really such a bad thing after all, whereas in actual fact, it is an absolute disaster, right? And uh, it remains radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years, some of us. Hundreds of thousands of years, right? And we've, we haven't really come up with a way to deal with it. And it's an environmental disaster, right? And one of, uh, one of the criteria of the taxonomy used to be that a guiding principle was that, it would, that no, no significant harm would be done to other environmental objectives uh, like the circular economy or water or pollution or biodiversity. And the point being made that we were making was that a plan for waste management does not make an economic activity sustainable. Uh, there's huge contradictions now. But, I mean, they're actually, they are moving their position and they're making allowances for gas and nuclear even more now since the war started because of their... Uh, haste in wanting to get completely uh, independent of Russian Mm -hmm. oil and gas. Now, I mean, listen, we were arguing that they should have been getting uh, more independent of oil and gas years ago. And but and they weren't doing it, and we were too slow to be at. Now, now we're doing it, but in actual fact, we're still not going to uh, to clean energy near as fast as we'd like to. And so we're 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 actually going to dump. The Russian version of gas and oil, and we're actually going to import dirtier, more expensive stuff of the same. So we're not actually making environmental. It's an it's a great opportunity uh, to do things better. But in actual fact, we're going to do things the same. Only we're going to do it with different players. Like for example, LNG 
is back uh, on the map, right? Uh, we we had, con- you know, Europe was moving away from it and they were refusing to build some plants in Europe. And uh, Europe needs, uh, if you want to buy frack gas, which mostly comes from America and there's a whole lot of it from Qatar, uh, if you want to buy frack gas from them, which is absolutely filthy, destroys the water table where it's been sourced, uh, there's huge uh, emissions from it, uh, from the boats bring them from America, for example, and it's real expensive. And the price is going up now as well, of course, right? So the Russian gas, well, I'm not saying we shouldn't be independent of Russian gas. Of course we should. But the Russian gas is actually cleaner and cheaper than what we're replacing it with, right? And who's going to pay the price, right? You'll find it'll be the citizens of Europe that'll be uh, footing the bill. It's a big problem. I suppose the big problem really is that it's a pretty boring subject and topic for a lot of people. Um, You know, talking about these terms and emissions and trading, it can seem to be very abstract, um, even though it really is life and death in terms of the planet. And it will be in terms of the consequence of all of the stuff that Mick's been talking about is that it's going to hit people in their pockets. And the decisions that the European Union is making under cover of the war and supposedly hitting Russia is actually going to really, really hit the planet and hit the pockets of European citizens. And that's the scary bit because that's actually not getting attention at all. And we had the ridiculous situation where we had Michal Martin going to the Council of Ministers meeting or the the European Council meeting berating the Hungarians that they needed to, you know, get on board with these oil sanctions from Russia. Now, of course, the Hungarian uh, economy is massively dependent on Russian oil, as are a number of other countries. And they've said, look, we want to wean off it, but we can't do it straight away. And we need a massive help financially and we need the infrastructure. And it's a bit of a stretch now, a bit of a neck from Michal Martin now to be the best little European boy in the class yakking away at other powers and lecturing them at what to do like you know it make you sick actually um you know and but, but, but talk, talk about others lecturing right you know the americans have uh have put a, a, a they're, they're cutting out important oil from russia as well right and they're telling the whole world they should do this and they're, they're going to uh, introduce uh third rate sanctions on people that don't actually follow what they want to be done but it turned out this week we discovered that India, for example, and it came up at the, at the debate today as well uh, at Foreign Affairs, but India is is buying oil from Russia and the Americans are buying oil now from India. Now, you couldn't make it up, right? Mm. The Russians, the Americans are actually buying Russian oil through India. Mm. Now, we don't know what kind of quantities, uh, but by all accounts, it's, they're not massive. But uh, the... But, the idea that the Americans are actually buying Russian oil uh, from India is just laughable. It just shows that a lot of it is kind of demonstration. Oh, and well, it just shows how the European Union is shooting itself in the foot while America is laughing its head off, getting its, its filthy frack gas into Europe, carrying on buying oil itself in its own devious ways. Meanwhile, the economic pressure on countries like Germany, on France... 
uh, and Europe Ian citizens is just striking and growing by the day like and we're coming into the summer months but what's it going to be like in the winter when people are trying to pay uh, their energy bills it's just total lunacy and all of this is the consequence and people have to realise that there are massive lobbyists based here who didn't want the environmental standards that Europe did agree to and we would have been critical that they weren't enough but even the ones that were there have now been unspun because of uh, the war and it's a consequence that doesn't get uh, enough attention. Another consequence of course is the drive towards increased militarism which we now see and people will be aware that Denmark has moved from its normal position of not being engaged in European defence to making the decision to be involved in that and there's the mood music from Finland and Sweden also about joining NATO. Now, I suppose the first thing on that is that these countries aren't neutral in the way in which Ireland is. Like, they're very much in the camp of militarism anyway and are just kind of non-aligned in name anyway. So, but it's still very, very significant that this has happened. It's not helpful. And what is illustrating is we can see our own um, establishment trying to latch on to that now, sort of saying the space for neutral countries is shrinking. Um, Leo Faradkar was on the news there the other day saying he was very confident that Ireland would vote to join uh, an EU army. Good luck with that one, Leo. But it just shows that that's their intent to go after our neutrality when in actual fact it's more important now that Ireland is neutral, not just for ourselves but for everybody in Europe because we should remember it's not the people of Denmark or Finland or Sweden who are making this decision. It's their governments. Uh, and that's tragic. No other country has a say in the way in which we have, like, you know. And their argument, their argument against uh, running f- referendums to see what the people really thought, because you actually, uh, you really don't know until you actually r- uh, run a proper referendum. Uh, because up to that point, uh, the media are telling you uh, how things are. And uh, I mean, uh, how much can you believe in the media these days in any of the countries in Europe? So, I mean, a proper referendum would at least give the decision to the people. But they said, you know what? We haven't time to go for a referendum. This is too important. My God. The the Russians had armies in Eastern Europe, right? (laughs) On the German border. And Finland and Sweden had no problem. Uh, There was no problem and there was no threat to them. And you know what? There's actually no missiles at the moment aimed at Finland or Sweden from Russia. But when they join NATO, they will be. They're off their head. Mm. Lunacy. Very depressing, really. But, I mean, you can see the march of, yeah, the lobbyists, really, those who wanted to get what they want out of this European Union and they're falling for it hook, line and sinker. Yeah, for sure. Another thing that I know you were discussing in committees this week, Claire, was the question of kind of new... Frontex rules. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, the other side of the tragedy is for the massive displacement of peoples from Ukraine, which is continuing, although that has changed now. I mean, six and a half million Ukrainian citizens have passed from Ukraine or Moldova uh, into the EU over the past period, which is absolutely massive. But for the first time now, there's more going back than there is arriving, which I think is interesting and it's not something that has really featured uh, in the media at all. And I do see uh, today that there's a number of stories of interviewing people in Ireland who had come to Ireland and who are going back as the war continues. Not that they were dissatisfied with the reception that they got in Ireland or anything. It's just it's not their home and the war goes on. But um, 
I think, I suppose, there's a couple of things around the issue. One is the fact that there's huge discrepancies in the numbers. So over 6 million, they say, have come in, but they've only registered 2.9 million. And all of this talk about EU solidarity, there's different rules going on in different countries. So countries like Greece and Germany and these places and um, let me see Estonia and those have brought in different rules, which have made it more difficult for some people. So not everybody who was in Ukraine is getting to be allowed in. Like So stateless people are excluded by a whole number of um, member states. Estonia, for example, only gives protection to Ukrainian nationals or those who are under international protection and their families. But there's been difficulties with people who are maybe members of third countries outside of that, who are maybe married to Ukrainians. So all of these laws are messing with the lives of refugees fleeing um, Ukraine. But the biggest story really is the impact on the other refugees who literally have, it's been bad enough with those people getting access to Europe, but it has literally dried up now. The borders are closed. All of the people who fled Afghanistan who are stuck there now, including the ones who worked with the Western forces, um, if they've got out to Pakistan or Iran, they're stuck there. They can't get a visa into Europe. No member state is issuing visas at all, despite the fact that they are starving and hungry. And the contact of the conduct of countries like Greece carries on abated, where we had the commissioner from Greece, uh, Skinas, giving an interview this week where he basically didn't even deny the fact that there were pushbacks. Now, a pushback is preventing, is breaking international law. It means preventing someone who has a legal right to seek asylum for entering your shore and registering that request. And they're basically on record as saying we have prevented tens of thousands of people that they call them illegal immigrants coming to European shores. But how do you know if you don't process the application? And we dealt with the cases before of the bodies being washed up naked um, people put overboard by the Greek Coast Guard without their phones, without their clothes, without their documents, uh, saying, make your own way there now, back to Turkey. And they obviously died. And this is carrying on. And Frontex, we had the new head of Frontex in before the committee and it was utterly depressing. The last fella had to resign because there was a fraud investigation and Frontex, the European Coast Guard, had been involved in allegations of abuses of uh, fundamental rights and pushbacks. And I found myself sitting there listening to the new one and going, Jesus, you know what? The, the old fellow wasn't as bad after all. I mean, this organisation needs to be disbanded. Your woman tried to tell us that we should be feeling sorry for the Frontex staff, that they were traumatised by all of the bad publicity and everything was terrible. Now, you kind of assume, and, you know, she's going about, you know, we're dealing with increased violence now and threats on our border. And kind of going and saying, yeah, missus, and it's coming from ye a lot of the times. And if you think you're traumatised, what about the people who've been at the receiving end of your violence? Like, you know, it's actually scary. And for the first time, their management board has secured permission for lethal weapon provision. So... Uh, they'll be looking at lethal weapons, what they need. Your woman saying, we're operating in a much more threatening environment now, more violence, um, more security threats. But actually, you can see in the response to Ukraine how we can welcome so many people if we say, actually, our first responsibility is to care for people fleeing from war. That's what we should be saying. And when we do that, we can move mountains. Now, there are huge deficiencies, as I said, in the Ukrainian scheme. And as the war goes on, that's going to be more so. And those people will suffer greatly and are in many member states. But the answer to that is stop the war. Yeah, um, there, there has been soundings from uh, France and Germany in particular. And uh, 
who are more or less saying, look at, um, it's, it's, it's so important that we stop the war now and that uh, we start talking. But there's most of the people, the French and the Germans are probably the only two that are on that page yet. And uh, I read an article in the Financial Times yesterday who uh, the guy was attacking France and Germany for suggesting uh, that, they take, that they go to that position. And they say, they were more or less saying, oh, it's, it's all very well for France and Germany. Usually be safe. What about the people in Eastern Europe? Why? Mother of God. I mean, this is unbelievable. You couldn't have made this up. You couldn't. Uh, The the lack of of any initiative from the EU towards looking for peace is shocking. And Ukrainians are dying because of it. The Americans have no problem... uh, pumping more and more arms into the place. They're happy uh, to keep the war continuing. Uh, the Europeans are more concentrated on how can we hurt Russia more rather than how do we stop the war. And we, we're, we're now introducing more sanctions uh, that are designed to cripple the, the, the Russian economy. And we're still waiting for a peace initiative uh, from the European Union. And... Uh, who would have thought that a European Union that we thought was built as a peace project uh, is now becoming a military project? It's, it's absolutely shocking. Yeah, you know, and you're right. And like, there's whole industries growing up around this. Like, people will be aware of a lot of the talk now about disinformation and cyber security and all of this sort of stuff. But it's a bit like what happened after 9 11. After 9 11 and the war on terrorism, whatever, there was an absolute explosion. Um, in security contracts and we have to make ourselves safe, we have to defend ourselves and we have to fight terrorists. And it just became basically a licence to print money for the military industrial complex. Now we have, uh, if you like, the threat from Russia and China, China being packaged in the same way. And disinformation and propaganda war is a key part of that. Now, I was honoured earlier in the week to launch for the Islamic Human Rights Commission and Spinwatch, a really good report that they launched. Um, Professor David Miller, who himself has been the victim of Israeli targeting and a bit like Jeremy Corbyn, you know, being targeted of anti-Semitism, the usual stuff to be driven out of his post in the UK. But an excellent study on the Radicalisation Awareness Network, which is an EU funded platform, which supposedly deals with the sort of the danger of extremism and how they combat that. But he has demonstrated that this is a false narrative put out, really, which has institutionalised and made official policy Islamophobia and targeting Muslims as the root of all evil, even though the research that gave rise to that platform said we should be looking at our policies in destabilising those countries as the root of that. And you're seeing many of the same organisations that... I suppose, conflated migration and securitization and Muslims with terrorism now appearing in the debate about Russia and China being the big threat on our border and the need to control them. And that's where all the money is around packaging this information in a way in which people see other human beings, be they Muslims or Russians or Chinese people, as the enemy and our people as the good guys. And it's just used to shut down dialogue and conversation and it's really scary and the amount of EU money that's gone into this now is beyond belief. And they're, they're using that narrative as well it seems to shut down criticism of the governments, EU governments are using it to shut down criticism of their own actions I 
I think it was an Irish, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure exactly who, who it was who was saying it, but this is something that's come up again and again. It's kind of, don't trust Russian dif- disinformation mm. that, that your cost of living is as a result of um, the sanctions that we put on Russia. That's not the case. <laughs> it's Russia's war. The only reason that the cost of living is going up, you know, we bear no responsibility for it. And obviously, you know, it's a it's shaped by many factors, but the Western governments can't absolve themselves of any responsibility for yeah. Look at I mean, cost of living. Uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine is a disaster, and um, it's uh, it was it was criminal on, on on Russia's part to actually invade a sovereign country, and it has is creating serious waves. Mm. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that the sanctions and the reaction of the European Union has been self defeating. Uh, it is going to damage the EU citizens, I reckon, more than it would damage the Russian mm. government. Mm. And now we, we had um, we had three different foreign affairs committees today, uh, and one, two of them were in, were in camera, which is, has become a pretty popular thing here, which is a bit of nonsense, given that the parliament um, is supposed to be transparent, is supposed to be democratic in how it runs its business, and uh, for that to be true the people should have access to what's been said at committees. And uh, I inquired about today from an official, right? and I was told that this is something that's been driven by the council, that the council, if the council are going to speak at these meetings, they want them in camera. Well, you see, well, well you, they would say that, wouldn't they? Given that we've already been given out about the fact that the uh, European Council meetings are held in secret. And there's no transparency and no accountability around what goes on at those meetings. And the people have no say and have no access to what's been done in their name at the council meetings. It's a secret club. It's a, it has nothing to do with democracy. But one of the meetings that we had today in camera ha- had to do with the accession to the European Union of Ukraine in particular, and also the, they've just thrown Georgia and Moldova in the mix, but it's mostly about Ukraine. And now I'm not going because it's in camera. I'm not going to talk about what uh, what they and even said. But I highlighted and I challenged the uh, European External Action Service and the Commission and the Council on their position on it. Right, because this is all about fast tracking uh, Ukraine's entry into the European Union. Now there's countries in the Balkans waiting over twenty years to get in, and we've been told uh, for a hundred. We've been given several different reasons, mostly around rule of law, around corruption, around judiciary, as to why they're actually not fit for entry yet. It's a bit like, remind you of Ireland, where uh, we, we, we haven't been able to, uh, we couldn't do this da or daughter for uh, refugees from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria and Libya. Uh, but now we can do everything for Ukraine. Uh, we're, we're, we're all of a sudden, uh, we've no problem uh, looking after people, uh, which is great. But I mean, I hope we we're going to keep, start doing it for everyone mm. else as well, and and for our own people too. But uh, one of the things today was uh, that they're, they're given an argument why we cannot use the same criteria. Some people, a whole lot of people, are saying we can't use the same criteria now for Ukraine. It has to be a special case. We we almost uh, ignore the rules. And I said, well, hold on a minute now. I said, right? I said the European Court of Auditors went to Ukraine last year and did a very extensive report and they published it at the end of September. The end of September, little over half a year ago, right? And in the report, they, they said that for more than 20 years, the EU has been supporting Ukraine in its reform agenda. 
tackling corruption, which is a major obstacle to any country's development and runs counter to EU values and is an integral part of that. Grand corruption and state capture are endemic in Ukraine. As well as hindering competition and growth, they also harm the democratic process. And went on to say that despite varied support the EU has offered to Ukraine, oligarchs and vested interests continue to undermine the rule of law in Ukraine and to threaten the country's development. Ukraine last year was deemed the most corrupt country in Europe, right? And now we're in a clamour to get him into the European Union. Has anyone asked the question, what's it going to be like? What will be the repercussions of doing this? Right? It was bad enough that we actually, we've given an uh, endless amount of arms to Nazi groups operating in Ukraine. Right? We're, now we want to get him into the EU in a hurry, despite the fact that they're, more, they're the most corrupt country in Europe, the place is run by oligarchs, and uh, the judiciary is a joke in the place. Right? So, and these are ready for European Union, are they? Oh yeah, right. Uh, let's have a look at how the, 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 what the future of European Union looks like when these fellas join. Well, it's just so disingenuous because they know there's no chance of the Ukraine being allowed to or in a place of being able to join the EU anytime in the short term. If they were to join now or the foreseeable future, it would mean the whole of the European Union being involved in war with Russia because that there's a mutual defence clause. So that's not going to happen. So they know it's not going to happen. So why are they discussing this? This is part of the failed policy, again, to prod at and sort of isolate Russia. And it's their desire to have a sort of a we're all on one side and Russia's on the other side and we'll be permanent enemies. And it's a licence to print money then for those who are in the industries which spin off this type of nonsense, really. That's what it's for, like, you know. Um, but, like, if it was the case that people in Ukraine in different circumstances voluntarily chose to join the European Union in the future, that would be absolutely fine. But the problem has been, I suppose, for them is when they tried to do that before, the price that the European Union put on it in terms of the structural changes and the neoliberal reforms which have made what was already a really poor country even poorer and the ordinary citizens of that country paying the price of that. So I think what's really interesting is the report that you highlighted, Mick, is from the court, our own Court of Auditors, so not a radical body, the European Union's own Court of Auditors. 20 years, they say. They've been at this 20 years. The EU has been putting in money and yet the corruption is endemic. And not only that, but I mean, we've seen particularly since 2014, but even before that, the arrest of journalists, the clampdown of opposition leaders being in, in prison, all of these things, violence, obviously all political parties now are banned except the extreme right. Uh, all of these things are pretty scary and they're supposed to be not you know, this is supposed to be all in conflict with European values. Now, look at what happened or is happening. We all forget now. Um, but it wasn't that long ago that Poland and Hungary and Slovakia and the Czech were, and Top all of, of these the countries which have their problems because they were rushed in to the European Union to uh, cajole them into NATO to have a go at Russia. And look where that ended up. Of course, mm -hmm. they were a pool of cheap labour for the West as well. Right. I mean, you're right. They're not going to get in overnight. But... Uh, the 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 groundwork is being done to to still fast track them uh, sometime in the next few years, I reckon. Right? Oh no, totally, and, totally. And, and I mean, uh, for a country that was that was deemed only last September by the EU Court of Auditors as the most corrupt in Europe, right? They wouldn't have been uh, 
given a chance of getting in for a lot, many years yet, but they are going to get in sooner uh, than originally expected. And I mean, this and, is and, another... and without actually meeting the uh, the EU standards that the EU EU has set for accession members. Well, yeah, and who's going to pay the cost of that? Like, it'll be the ordinary citizens of Europe because the oligarchs in Ukraine who've already creamed off all the European money, like the oligarchs in Bulgaria and these countries, when they do, if they do join, they're going to be creaming them off all the more. And, um, you know, what are people in Ireland going to think of that, if you like? Because they'll be paying for it. We are already a net contributor to the European Union. So, and for what? Like to enrich some already massively rich people. And of the millions that already have gone into Ukraine from the EU, um, the European Court of Auditors have said that there is zero evidence that the money was well spent. And obviously what they were saying was that the oligarchs and vested interest uh, seemingly have got most of the money. Isn't it really? A, a bit like what happened in Afghanistan with our propping up of a corrupt government for 20 years. But the saddest thing is that even opinion polls in Ukraine, even after Christmas, had corruption as the top issue. The biggest thing that was worrying Ukrainian people, even in January, uh, in the surveys that they did, it was not the Donbass war, it wasn't the fear of Russia, corruption was the number one issue. Uh, and it's just another, I suppose, disastrous consequence of uh, Russia's illegal invasion that the people of Ukraine were very sceptical about their leaders, were very aware about the corruption being carried out that they weren't benefiting from. And ultimately, they're the only ones who can secure a change in how their country is run. But now, like the way in which everybody in Russia has rallied to Putin and the war, people in Ukraine, I'd imagine, largely are rallying uh, to the defence of, of Ukraine and all of those other issues go out the window but actually all of those other issues are ordinary people in Ukraine and Russia and in Europe paying the price for something that wasn't of their creation Well, well speaking of European money uh, just another uh, section we had today on foreign affairs I, I, I won't go into it in any great detail but it was actually on uh, the global gateway strategy and uh, over a number of years, there's actually been 300 billion been earmarked for the global gateway strategy, but it's over a long period of time. I, I actually forget the number of years involved, right? But a lot of it is going to be spent in Africa. And I asked them, I said, I said, you've spent 8.5 billion in the Sahel region alone uh, in sub-Saharan Africa since 2015. I said, have you checked... Uh, whether you've got any value for money for the place. What did you do with the money? How was it spent on, I asked them. How much of it went into infrastructure? Because they were criticising China for investing in infrastructure in Africa and saying that they were just being devious, right? Because they're actually building railways out there, right? And they're building apartments, right? They're spending a whole lot of money on infrastructure. Listen, they're not doing it for the, for, just for the good of them. The, the Chinese, and, and I made the point, I said, whether it's the US or the EU or Canada or Russia or China, if they're down investing in, South, in Africa, anywhere in Africa, they're doing it for, to, to benefit their own interest. All the countries, every one of them are after, looking after themselves, right? But the Chinese are doing it uh, different than them, and they seem to be having more progress. But in 
actual fact of the 8.5 billion spent in the Sahel, right, there was only a fraction of it went into infrastructure or for social development. Most of it was spent on security and military, right? And it's been an absolute waste of European taxpayers' money. And there's been no accountability for it. Now, I've written to the European Court of Auditors and I've asked them to investigate that as well. I don't know whether they're going to do it or not, but, I mean, the Europe, European citizens should know and people in Ireland should realise that there's money being spent by the European Union in their name and it's their money and uh, it, you know what? Most of it is ending up in the pockets of the military-industrial complex. What a waste of money. And the reason why they do it is stupid terms like fund for the global gateway. I mean, who makes up these yokes? Like, you know what I mean? This is modern day colonialism. They haven't, the leopard hasn't changed his spots. The Europeans are doing what the Europeans always did in Africa. But they dress it up when we raise those points. They go, but that's different. We're a democracy. We're doing it to kind of help the people down there. The others are doing it to exploit them. Would you ever get over yourselves? Like, of course you're not. uh, Does that explain? why there's 70% uh, poverty uh, in the Sahel region and uh, illiteracy rate is over 70%. My God. The yeah, they're pushing them back case. and drowning P- them things in the Things have actually got worse rather mm-hmm. than better after our 8.5 billion spent in the Sahel alone. Mm. If they left them alone, they'd do a hell of a lot better, that's for sure. Mm. And, and many of them know it as well. Yeah, one yeah, of the things, the reason in Ireland we are different, like because we are a former oppressed people ourselves who were occupied by a bigger neighbour. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have such sympathy for Palestine, which is a little bit out of the loop in terms of some of the other uh, countries. And I was, because we don't want to be too negative (laughs) all the time. A bit of good news, I suppose, that we got yesterday was after a lot of press, and I mean well over a year and a half now of prodding the commission, trying to get answers to this myth put out by the Irish government that the Occupied Territories Bill, which was people will know was put forward by Senator Francis Black to outlaw trade in illegal settlement goods and it got through in the last legislature but the Irish government and Fine Gael in particular have kind of said we can't enact it because it would be against EU rules on trade the EU is the only competence on this so we've been engaged in a lot of questions to the Commission to try and unpick this and of course the first answers we got were oh no the EU is the sole beneficiary on trade and a few of them like that but then the one we got yesterday when we took off the layers and dug down a little bit they were saying that um, they said that they do recall that the common commercial policy is an EU exclusive competence that the EU does apply common arrangements for the import of goods from third countries uniformly across the EU and in principle only the EU can decide to prohibit the importation of goods and services and not the member states individually in the absence of an explicit authorisation by the EU, they can't uh, adopt their national rules. And it's been that kind of thing that we've been getting all the time, but worth. However, and then there's a big however, according to Article 24.2 of the Regulation EU 2015-478 of the European Parliament and of the Council of the 11th of March, on the common rules for imports, the Commission confirms that EU member states can exceptionally adopt or apply quantitative restrictions on the grounds of public morality or public security, the protection of health and life of humans, animals or plants, the protection of national treasures, 
possessing artistic, historic, archaeological value, blah, blah, blah. In such a case, the member states shall inform the commission of the measures that they intend to produce. Mm. So very clearly, basically saying, sorry, Simon and Leo now, but it would appear that she actually can implement this. So we obviously pass that on to Francis Black's office and we'd be hoping that colleagues in Ireland would run with that and the broad support that exists across Ireland for the Palestinian cause could be taken to the next stage because that was a beacon for people all over Europe as well, certainly all over the world because the sort of pro-Israel lobby here is very dominant. Very strong, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's absolutely a nice bit of nice. good news. So it's, it's one to watch and we'll be picking up the pieces on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, one last thing before we head off. Mick and Claire, both of you met with the group of Irish fishers who were in Brussels last week. Is that true? Yeah, both of us met them uh, on Tuesday, I think it was. Uh, but on, on the evening, on Monday evening, uh, I first got, I got an opportunity to challenge uh, the commissioner um, at the Environment Committee as well. Uh, Sinkovicic was in and he's responsible for fishing. And obviously people will know, we've discussed this issue before, but there's a review of the common fisheries policy uh, this year, every 10 years. And 2022 is the year. But, uh, and... I kind of took a different angle on it this week because uh, with at the prompting of uh, fishing people in Ireland and I was pointing out that a huge problem with the common fisheries policy which the review needs to address this year is the fact that uh, part of its foundational policy is a thing called relative stability and that's whereby stocks and the rights to fish those stocks have essentially been fixed forever. But when the, when the common fisheries policy was designed in the first place that wasn't the way it was supposed to work, right? It, the, the relative stability issue was never designed to be fixed forever. And it was supposed to be capable of revision. You know, it should have reflect uh, where the fish were, what fish were available. But in actual fact, they've kind of written an awful lot of the rules in stone and they haven't been flexible on it. And fishing communities all around Ireland have actually paid a heavy price for that, right? And there's been a lawful, there's been huge rise in sea temperatures uh, in the northeast Atlantic in particular. And that has had a huge impact for, for Irish fishing people, right? So this is causing a huge mismatch between the allocated quotas assigned through this so-called relative stability and regional abundances of stock. So the fish have moved, but we haven't changed the rules and we haven't changed the quotas. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense. And just even from the point of view of the environment, right? Okay, well, some people think we shouldn't eat fish anyway, but listen. Uh, we're, That's me. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, I eat them, right? But anyway, I mean, the idea that boats are travelling so much extra miles to catch quota that they're allowed to catch. They're actually passing fish that they're not allowed to catch because the fish are moving around because of climate change, because the water is warming and it's changing. And they're having to move to find a more suitable habitat. And But the boats, the rules around what the boats can catch and what the different countries can catch are not changing. We need a serious review of it all. And when we're reviewing it, obviously the Irish are eager for this Pandora's box to be opened because we need a more fair deal. They were brilliant lads, like the lads we met, and in fairness, Sinn Féin's uh, Chris McManus organised the delegation and all of the different fishing groups were represented and the Irish Perm Reps Office were there and that. And these are a really determined bunch of lads who've been absolutely shafted since the beginning of the EEC, really, uh, and they're paying a price for that. And the lesson for me was, I suppose, that 
they know that they're paying the consequence of that, but we can't be defeated. They have to fight for everything. So mm. they're fighting with every single other member state who's been feeding off this pool. We're smaller. We have this resource. It's been sold out on us. So we have to fight for ours and the others aren't prepared to give up theirs. But the only conclusion of that is if you fight, you might win. If you don't fight, you've lost already. So they have no choice. And I think they couldn't get a better bunch of fellas who are up for that fight. So, And the big argument that the Commission will make, that the European Council will make, that the, the, the Irish Department will make, is that no one is going to give fish away for nothing. And it's not good enough to say that, oh, no country is going to give it up and you will have to pay for it if we're going to get better quotas. Well, in actual fact, it's about time that we took the fairness issue on board. Exactly. And the European Union has to apply fairness or it completely defeats everything that it's supposed to stand for. Exactly, because they're opening the floodgates or the sea gates or whatever to Norway, for example, in return for other stuff. And Norway aren't even in the European Union. But on the subject of fighting and on a happy note, again, we should pass congratulations to Colombian, the Colombian voters. (laughs) It would be completely wrong. Absolutely fan. Fantastic. The first round result of Gustavo Petro, the left wing candidate in Colombia, which would be an historic first if they could uh, come to power in that cesspit, like, you know, but uh, first round over, second round on the 19th of July. A number of our colleagues are... 19th of June. 19th of June, sorry, that's what I meant. Um, uh, a number of our colleagues were out there observing the election, really disappointing that we couldn't be there. I'd love to go to the next one. Look at it's a really, really seriously corrupt and dangerous place, Colombia. Um, whether the left wing will be allowed to win, I think, is a, a big if, uh, really. But uh, seismic times, it's incredible that he even got the vote that he got. This would transform um, South America. And I think it's something we should return to at, at one of the next podcasts. But fair play to the Colombians. Yeah, I was buying coffee uh, from a Colombian on Tuesday night. Um He's a really good guy and uh, he imports loads of coffee from Colombia. And um, we were talking about the election. He's, he's interested in politics and uh, he was delighted that the left-wing candidate uh, topped the poll in the first round. And um, he just says, oh, but he says, we have to wait. He says, uh, Colombia is a strange place. He says, we've never had a left-wing government before. They've never allowed it to happen. So he says, we just have to hope. He says, let's see what happens next. But <laughs> you, could, you could just tell by him, right, that uh, even though the left candidate won handsomely in mm-hmm. the first round, even this guy was kind of saying, oh, God, will they let him run, win in the crucial one the next time? Let's the see. The bravery of them, like when you see these armed militias and armed people basically intimidating them and everything, you know, him, uh, Petro and his, his running mate, the woman whose name I can't think of. But um, bloody hell, like they've some um, courage, really. Like when you think of all of the activists who are disappeared and murdered in that country on a regular basis, and of course, it never gets condemned in here. Of course, we had the outgoing um, president in here we protested at his attendance in, in Strasbourg previously Duque yeah unreal yeah, there's, there's been more people uh, in the last 12 months alone there's been a few hundred uh, activists killed protesters have been killed human rights workers have been killed environmental workers have been killed by state authorities and these are partners of the EU oh, yeah. partners of the US they're our friends so yeah. we don't give out about them they have by Per head of population, uh, according to the UN now, they have probably the worst human rights record on the planet 
and they're grand with us because Duque, he might be a bad piece of work and a dictator, but he's our boy. So yeah. we're fine with him. While we give out about the likes of Bolivia and Venezuela and Nicaragua because they happen to have left-wing governments, which doesn't suit the Americans or the Europeans. I think that's all we have time for this week. Um, so next week you'll be resuming in Strasbourg. Uh, you coming down with us? You know that I'm not. <laughs> um, you'll have the lovely Kate in the studio to host. So until then. Adios. Adios, adios amigos. <laughs>